All right. All right. All right. Welcome to uh, Live Courageously podcast show number two of 2023. I'm your host, John Duffy, and today's show is unique and a first for me in that my guest today is someone I don't know personally and never met in person yet. Um, this show is titled Live Courageously because that's been the uh, conscious theme of my life for the last three years since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, and also an unconscious theme for most of my life. And if you haven't seen the previous 18 podcasts with some of my amazing friends sharing their powerful stories of overcoming adversity and going on to live the best life that they can, you can watch them on my John Duffy YouTube channel uh, at Duffy Square Film. But this show is about faith and courage over fear. And I encourage you to adopt the spirit of courage in the face of any and all fears. And so let me introduce you today to my very special guest. And I encourage um, his name is Officer Dion Joseph, and he's someone who has lived a very courageous life. Uh, some of his uh, life, while very different than mine, resonates with experiences I've had in my life. I grew up in the South Bronx, New York City, and dropped out of high school at the age of 15. I went on a journey that led me today to today. And when I moved to L.A. in the 90s, I worked with homeless youth for two years as a counselor with Covenant House, and I worked with the mentally ill as a counselor in an overnight mental health facility before moving on to my uh, career now in the film industry and as a film producer. But I've also, one of the projects I did recently, I walked through all Skid Row by myself while we were working on a film project dealing with the issue of homelessness and Project Room Key. And it was uh, a very sad and mind-blowing experience. So anyway, I'm looking forward to this conversation and sharing his amazing journey with you. Uh, Dion Joseph is a law enforcement consultant, an author, an active police officer, and a homeless advocate. O officer Joseph is the author of Stepping Across the Line, A Skid Row Cop Story, a book that I read, which kind of was one of the reasons that I reached out to him. And he's a law enforcement consultant who has worked for the Los Angeles uh, police for 25 years, 22 of those years in downtown Los Angeles Skid Row community. And from patrolling the streets or providing a shoulder for the community to lean on or to meet with public public figures and advocating for change, Dion is driven to create an environment conductive to change for the homeless and those trying to reclaim their lives from the grips of addiction. Dion is considered a subject matter, matter expert on skid row crime and culture and has been sought out by multiple news organizations, various police departments, educational institutions, filmmakers, and politicians to speak on issues related to skid row. To accomplish those changes to the culture of skid row, Dion has collaborated with the community to develop programs such as the Just Like You Mentor Program, which began in 2006 at the Union Rescue Mission. The program was designed to motivate kids living in poverty to see themselves beyond their negative circumstances by placing mentors in front of them who had become successful, but whose lives mirrored the lives of the children. In 2008, Dion created an educational safety and self-defense seminar focused on the women of Skid Row called Ladies' Night. The goal of this program was to ensure that the women of Skid Row understood that no matter their race, criminal background, or social economic status, they had a fundamental right to report domestic violence and sexual abuse committed against them, and they would not be penalized for doing so. So in 2009, Dion started a, another program, an outreach program that included passing out hygiene kits, as well as drug housing and job programs information to the homeless to guide them away from the streets and into area programs. Working with the housing program within and outside of Skid Row, Dion was able to help house over 100 homeless people over eight years, 
who were truly ready to take a chance and change their lives for the better. Dion, along with his fellow officers, were responsible for a 40% reduction in overall crime in Skid Row and a 32% reduction in death from 2005 to 2009. Uh, Dion is proud to be able to show love to the people of Skid Row, and you're going to see that when we talk and see a, a video from him, uh, and he shows it from an unexpected place. And although Dion does not engage in his efforts for accolades, he has been honored citywide and nationally for his work. And just a note, as I do this interview, he's not speaking today as a representative of the police department, but as a citizen and a law enforcement consultant. Greetings. That's a, a lot. And that doesn't even begin to touch who this uh, man is. Greetings, um, Dion. And I'm so honored to have you on the show. And thank you for taking the time to be my, uh, uh, my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here and talk to you. Well, you know, you've had a, a, and I've been, uh, what made me reach out to you is I've had a, a experience of seeing a lot of your material interviews on YouTube, an interview on Epic Times, and also reading your book, which was uh, such an impressive book about your experience. And because my show is called Live Courageously, and I've interviewed people who I know in my life who've had courageous lives trying to make a difference, trying to make the world a better place, their community a better place. When I came across your story, I just had to reach out to you and say, you know, I just hope that this, um, you know, you would take the time to be on the show. And you obviously did. So thank you for that. But tell me a little bit, what, what does Live Courageously mean to you in your life? And then we're going to go back to your beginnings and take you through your journey, if that's cool with you. Well, I would judge that by the definition or my definition of what being a hero is. And being a hero is not just protecting or showing love to people who admire you or respect you. Uh, being a hero is uh, doing the same thing for those who love and, uh, and hate you. And uh, that's the real definition of a hero. That's one definition of uh, being courageous. But there's also another word called uh, bravery. And being brave doesn't mean you uh, don't have fears. All bravery is is pushing past your fears to complete a goal. And by the grace of God, a lot of faith, my upbringing, I've been able, able to push past a lot of personal fears, a lot of uh, uh, negative perceptions of me being a police officer or whatever, and uh, push past those things and uh, help people in ways that uh, my parents probably never could have even imagined uh, as a police officer. And it's such a blessing, such a blessing. We're talking about just, you know, you just mentioned your parents. Yeah, I mean, your parents were clearly, and I know this from reading a little bit about you, was amazing role models for you, but also in the community. Why don't we just start there for a minute and share uh, who they were and the impact they had on, on making you the man that you are today? My parents were angels on earth. And uh, when you listen to their stories growing up in the Jim Crow South, you wouldn't think that would have been their trajectory. Uh, both of them uh, were engaged in things that uh, they probably would approve of as they became adults. But uh, uh, once my father changed his life around, joined the military and uh, became a born again Christian, that's his faith uh, and my mother's, uh, they said to themselves, we're never going to do anything to get by, hurt other, any other people to get by in life. As a matter of fact, we're going to dedicate our lives to helping people. And that's what they did for 47 years of their marriage. They helped raise 41 foster children. And some of these kids came from uh, sexual abuse, uh, neglect, uh, physical abuse, you name it, these kids. Uh, we had crack babies in our home, kids who were raised by neo-Nazis who were afraid of us until they got uh, their first taste of fried chicken and collard greens. Completely changed their life forever. <laughs> and then my dad. I'm sure it would have. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget this one kid. He used to sleep with two knives under his pillow because his dad was a Nazi. And wow. uh, he, he said, uh, uh, my dad told me not to eat your food. So about a week, he almost starved. So finally, <laughs> we left some food out for him, right? And he snuck out in the middle of the night and had his first plate of soul food. And he didn't die. And he realized his dad was a liar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he felt like part of our family. That was my parents. And I, and I watched my parents love children in an un... Uh, they didn't, they didn't pander, they didn't patronize kids, you know, they treated these foster children exactly the way they treated us. So these kids immediately felt a part of our family. Okay, if I got chastised, they got chastised. If they had punishment, I got punishment. You know, if I got a hug, they got a hug. And it was amazing to watch my parents fill the hole in the hearts of many of these kids. And whether they stayed with us for two weeks or two years, uh, many of them left our home kicking and screaming, not even wanting to go back to their parents. But I love how my parents always took it a step further. It wasn't just about the kids. Their goal was to heal families. So oftentimes they would sneak and meet with the parents of the kids and counsel them so they could get home to their kids and have healthy, thriving relationships. And it was amazing to watch. There was no resentment for sharing the love on top of three more foster children, four kids, three grandkids. It was a lot in my house, but it was wonderful to watch. And then my dad, who uh, came up from the Jim Crow South, had to commit crime to survive, uh, and he never condoned it. He always condemned it uh, when he became a, a grown man. But when he started his own business, he reached back and hired individuals who reminded him of himself. People who needed a second chance who were passed over because of racism, discrimination, because uh, the criminal record, and he gave them jobs. And I watched him turn these men into fine, outstanding men who became great husbands, great fathers. Some of them went and started their own business because of this man. Imagine coming from nothing and then meeting my father. And I'll never forget, my dad, he never called them his employees. He always called them his friends. You'll never ever hear me call somebody from Skid Row homeless, a bum, a transient. You'll never hear those words. I will always call them my friends, even if some of them hate my guts. <laughs> but I'll always call them my friends. And then lastly, uh, my parents, they fed the homeless uh, religiously like for about 10 years. I remember my mother missing uh, birthdays, sometimes being late to even my wedding to do what she felt was God's calling. And that was feed the homeless uh, every Saturday night. And the way she did it was in a, such a responsible way where she got to know the individual. Instead of just throwing food, clothes, and blankets at them and filming herself and leaving, it was really trying to impact their lives and get in there and uh, show them love from a place where these people didn't expect it. So all that was instilled in me. And when I became a police officer, I didn't want anything to do with that because I saw how sometimes it often ruined my parents' lives. Uh, my parents went broke several times trying to help people, but I ended up being just like them, uh, but in a different capacity. And I can only hope they're proud of me. Well, I'm sure they are. And it, it almost sounds like besides your book, there's a book about them because the impact they had is, I mean, that's just an a unbelievable story about fostering kids, not just kids who are like them, but all kinds of kids and being able to change their lives and touch them. I mean, there's there's a story there that's just so powerful as well. And, you know, we we obviously me and you came from a, a different environment. But what you said um, at the end about how you treat the homeless, it reminded me of a story when I was a young kid in the South Bronx. I was we were like the only white kids in that neighborhood. And I was hanging out with my friends. And one time we were going across a bridge in the, and we, my friends started making fun of what we used to call back in the day was uh, a wino. And so they started mm -hmm. calling them names and they were older than me. And he ran up the stairs and caught me on the bridge and hung me over the bridge to drop me in the water. And I did wow. a whole lot of uh, begging and, 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 and talking and, 
you know, eventually he pulled me back and he said, look, you know, I just want to tell you one thing. He said, don't ever treat anybody like that. Don't disrespect anybody and call them something like all you guys did. And that was a lesson for life because it gave me that lesson that no matter where somebody is, whatever they're going through, that he that guy gave me the lesson of how to treat people with respect, no matter who they are. So I totally you know, resonate with what you're saying, man, that no matter the people you're dealing with, they're humans that you treat with respect. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's it's an important, uh, and then, and then, you know, you, you, you know, I, I read as I read, so you go from that to becoming a police officer, which Mm -hmm. wasn't something that you wanted to do. Wasn't something that apparently you didn't have. And and this resonates with me too, because I grew up in a neighborhood where we hated the cops. And I know Mm -hmm. that you didn't have a, uh, much love for being a police officer when you were younger. And why don't you share that story with the audience? And, and, um, and then I'm going to take you a little further because there's another story that I just love that you've shared before. Yes, uh, being young and African-American, it's almost like we're indoctrinated or with the belief that white people, the police, uh, they're our natural enemy and we have to fear them. So all my life, and I didn't get this from my parents. My, my dad never instilled fear in me. It was the opposite. But of course, my dad couldn't watch me 24-7. But when I was in high school, we were influenced by the music, NWA, Public Enemy, KRS-One. They were my favorite rap groups. I joined an activist group in my school. Uh, When that activist group first formed, it was about, hey, we need to talk about uh, more African-American success stories rather than focusing on slavery. These are the things they want us to uh, focus on. So let's focus on the things that we were great at before and after slavery. And I was like, man, that's what attracted me to this group. So it was going very well for about two weeks, and then our uh, leader ended up quitting. So he was replaced by a guy who was from the Nation of Islam. And of course, this young man, I love him to death, but he came through with a conspiracy theory. The government's out to get you. The government's trying to kill you. The police are out to get you. And every day we met with this guy, it was the same thing. America hates you. America wants to kill you. And uh, I remember one day during one of our indoctrination sessions, okay, (laughs) He was sitting there at the table and he said, uh, OK, today we're going to talk about the police and our police are trying to exterminate the black man. And whoop, whoop, whoop. can uh, each of you guys tell a story about how the police have impacted you or your family? And I'm looking at the guys around the table. and I'm like, these are good kids. These are young African-American. They didn't commit crimes. I knew their parents. But all of a sudden, everybody started coming up with the story, starting with the leader who told this horrific story about something that happened to his cousin. So next, you know, everybody starts following suit. And what I noticed was everybody was coming up with what we call toppers, a story that tops the next. <laughs> and when they got to the, my, my friend on my right, my left, uh, he didn't know what to say. So uh, he said, hey, so what happened to you, brother? And he goes, well, uh, uh, every time I step outside my house, the police harass me. And I look at him and do, dude, your mama doesn't even let you out the house. <laughs> I can't even get you to come out and play basketball with us because of your religious beliefs. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And that's what I, and I'm going to apologize to America right now. I was coming up with my topper too. But I, was raised, <laughs> I was raised to be honest. And when I saw that with my friend, I realized what was happening to me. And after a couple of weeks and another incident, I decided to leave that group. Uh, but I still had a negative perception of the police based on being racially profiled a couple of times as a young man. Uh, then came the Rodney King incident uh dalton street and a couple other incidents that occurred that really uh, the, the media got involved and made it about black and white uh it may have been it may not have been but it basically put the community versus the police for ratings 
uh, and click uh, ratings and likes, you know, and uh, sponsors. And it was nonstop. The music, the, the radio DJs you listen to, it was the police, the police, the police. So I did not have a healthy view of the police. Matter of fact, it was hatred. And, uh, and I, I should have known, known better because I had an uncle who was a police officer who was a really great human being, but I didn't care. The influence of the outside had more of an influence on a young African-American male than anybody else. So then uh, I became a man and my parents started the first uh, black owned shopping center in the city of Long Beach. We owned an entire lot with multiple businesses and I was so proud wow. and we were trying to give back to our community and, and empower the community. And uh, then after the riots and a couple other incidents, then the economy crashed, I think it was in the early 90s, and uh, we had to shut it down. Uh, and I was out of a job for four or five months. And me, I was raised to go get a job, to work, to grind. So, and then I met the most beautiful woman in the world, my current wife, uh, and she's gonna stay that way. I said that like I'm gonna get rid of her. <laughs> <laughs> my current wife. <laughs> but anyway, uh, my, my wife right now, uh, I met her, most wonderful woman on the planet. Of course, back then I was raised as a traditional man. I have to take care. I have to make sure that uh, I'm able to take care of her. So I put my name in many hats and nobody would hire me. Some of them, obviously, because of discrimination, my skin color. I didn't have a criminal record. Uh, and, but then my uncle and another friend of mine said, hey, look, this department is hiring. I can't mention them, but this department is hiring. They are accepting you regardless or whatever's going on. Give it a shot. And I thought to myself, you know what? I can't, not that one, but I'll put my name in the hat anyway. All the, out of all the jobs that I put it, applied for, the only one that said yes was the department I'm working for now. And I wasn't happy about it. I was like, oh, but I needed this job, right? So I figured I was going to do it. And I was going to stay in for about three years, go to college, get a degree and leave, do something else. Uh, prior to that, I was told by some members of my family and my in-laws, you know, uh, don't let those white boys change you. They're going to teach you to hate your own people. All the things that I was indoctrinated to believe, and I was scared. I was terrified. But then when I got to the academy and I was in the academy, I learned that 99% of what was told to me about policing was absolutely false. I learned about the history of policing. I also learned that the department <laughs> that I worked for uh, was teaching us more about human relations and race relations than teaching us how to keep our heads from being blown off in the street. And wow. that surprised me. I literally knew more Spanish <laughs> than, uh, than I did how to slice a pie <laughs> in the academy during the building search. And uh, it, it was like really shocking to me. And another pleasant surprise is how uh, we were able to have this dialogue and I was able to express how the African-American community felt. Not one time did my agency say that black people were the enemy. Uh, not one time did they say that black people were targets uh, and none of that. So that helped wake me up to a degree. But as I graduated the academy, uh, I still held those beliefs. And it wasn't until I got to Venice Beach. That was my first gig on probation. I was on probation. And Venice is a great place. You know, I should have enjoyed it. But of course, I was on probation. So they were on me like a hawk. I had one <laughs> training officer. One training officer said to me, it's my job to fire you. I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> so. So after I left that guy, I ended up working with a legend. This guy was a legendary figure. His name yeah, that's was, the uh, story Bill. I was going to ask you about. Yes, please, please yeah, share yeah. the story. Bill Snowden, he was six foot four, blonde, uh, sandy blonde hair, big old mustache, blue eyes, the stereotypical uh, prototype of what a racist cop looks like per what I was indoctrinated to believe. So I'm admitting, America, I was prejudiced. Okay, mm -hmm. but I wasn't racist. There's a difference. And before I go any further, let me define racism. Racism is the belief that your race, your ethnic background is superior 
which by itself is not racism. But when you take that belief and use that sense of superiority to hurt others who aren't you, a la Adolf Hitler, okay, that's racism. So we got to stop confusing or conflating what that word really is. But I did suffer from prejudice mm. based on my uh, experiences with white folks uh, when I came up in my city in my junior high school and what I was told about them. So anyway, so I get in the car with this guy and I found out that he arrested 2,300 people in a black part of town called Oakwood over 14 years. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get in the car with this guy and I'm going to be driving around this neighborhood. And they're going to call me Uncle Tom, Sambo. They're going to hate him. I'm going to get shot. <laughs> and I was like, wow. So he noticed how quiet I was. <laughs> and as I'm dri we're driving through the neighborhood, I couldn't believe what I was hearing in a black community back then. Oprah was black, and before it got gentrified, and it, and I'm hearing this: "What's up, Snow? Snowden, man, how you doing? Hey, hey, thanks for helping my cousin, Snow. Hey, man, thanks for protecting my mom, Snow. Hey, thanks for helping me out in jail, Snow." And I'm sitting there like, "What the hell is going on? Is it not so dangerous?" And these people are saying hello to him to keep him off his back, keep them off the keep him off their back. And he must have noticed it. And uh, he pulled the car over and said, what's on your mind? And I was like, sir, I, why are these people liking you? I don't understand it. Why do they like you? Why do they embrace you? And he said, Dion, this is Oakwood. The silent majority of people here understand why we're here. They know it's dangerous here. They know it's one of the roughest part of our area. Uh, but here's the deal. Whether we're helping them, whether we're arresting them, whether we're detaining them, no matter what we're doing to them or for them, as long as you treat them with dignity and respect, they understand. And I remember that. He says, and as long as you work with me, young man, you will treat everybody we contact with dignity and respect. Now, it wasn't that I needed that lesson. But sure. what it did was affirm to me, because I've learned that all my life from my parents. It right. affirmed to me that it's okay to be this way as a police officer. And working with this guy really inspired me. And I literally from a white officer and it had nothing to do with his skin color. And, you know, and it's, this is the truth, uh, biggest truth I'll ever tell you, because they always talk about where well, you should have black people policing uh, black communities. That's stupid. It's not about your skin. It's what's in your heart. And what was in this guy's heart was pure gold. His motivation to arrest all those drug dealers was not because he hated the community, because he wanted to help them. And the community right. recognized that. And, uh, and I, I took that and I modeled my career. After I got my five years under my belt and started to know my job, I modeled my career after that that uh, wonderful officer who is always going to be my hero, uh, one of my heroes until the day I die. But yeah, and now uh, in the Skid Row, about after my first seven years in Skid Row, I started getting calls from the rooftops. Hey, Joseph, God bless you, Joseph. Hey, man, come over here. I got some cake for you, Joseph. Or whatever, you know. <laughs> you know, people, people screaming my name from the rooftops. Eighty-six-year-old uh, ladies covered in scabies, kissing me on the cheek. I, I took it to a whole new le net level than he did because people were you hugging did. me, stopping being just. You did it. We're gonna have a chance to. People are gonna have a chance to watch a little short video in a minute of the level yeah. you've taken it to. But you know, just what you're saying, um, uh, Joseph, is you're, it, it, people, unfortunately, I think too much don't get a chance to know people individually. So we come with our beliefs, our prejudices, and we all have them based on whatever unique experiences we have, whatever our culture is, whatever our neighborhood was, we have them. Because we don't, if we don't know the other people, we don't know the other people. So we believe what we've been told to believe. 
But when you There's, get can a I, chance, can I, can I can I elaborate on that real quick? Oh, absolutely, just, please, just please. for a second. I didn't mean to interrupt. Just, please, there, I'm on this campaign in 2023 based on this wonderful, wonderful statement made by Dr. Pam Wiley, who was another hero of mine. She uh, helps young men on the spectrum of autism, and every now and then, when I'm available, I go and mentor those young men too. And uh, I remember we were at an event, and she said this. She got on the mic, and she was talking about how she hated cops based on what she saw with George Floyd and all this other stuff. And then she learned working with another cop who helps as well. And she said this, she says, in the absence of meaningful contacts, we tragically rely on stereotypes of one another. And when she said that, I don't remember anything else she said that night, it imprinted itself in my heart. And I'm on this huge mission to try to inspire people to engage in meaningful contacts. So I just wanted to put that out there. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. But that was no, so- No, and that's a good point. And it just kind of shifts me a little bit because, you know, uh, uh, surprisingly, given who I am and how I look, I shouldn't have had the experience I had. But where I grew up, I hung out with the Black Panthers. I hung out with the Black Muslims. I hung. That was my neighborhood. That was my friends. So it took me a while to get when I went into a white neighborhood. Like, how do I deal with these white people? Because I didn't have that experience. So right, I, right. You know, and so I kind of had the same beliefs against the cops, the same beliefs, because I was in that neighborhood and that influenced me. And it took until I got to know people who were different than me and got to know police and got to know military and got to know people who had a different experience than me, that I realized my beliefs and reality were two different things. My beliefs were wrong. My When I got to see reality and met people one-on-one, -on -one, I went, wow, this is mm -hmm. one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. But I thought he mm -hmm. was, this person was a horrible human being. So, right, right. you know, we come at the world with those, those uh, prejudices and beliefs and, it, and they, you know, there's a guy who I met and you may not have heard this, he did a, um, a feature film, a documentary film called, it originally was going to be entitled Walking While Black. And it was his story of anger at the police department for how he was treated. And somewhere in that thing, his brother was dying. And his brother said, you got too much hate in your heart, brother. You need to find love. Love is the answer. And so his brother died and he went out and he thought about it, he thought about it. And that thing changed his life. And he changed the name of the documentary to Walking While Black, Love is the Answer. And he started to reach out to the police department and create a relationship between the police department and communities throughout the country to be able to mm -hmm. say, let's get to know each other. Let the police get to know the street. And you do that every day of your life. But, you know, right. it's, it's such a powerful thing if people would just get outside of their beliefs and get outside their experience and go meet somebody who's different and come at respect with that. It's amazing what will happen. And I think you and that's, all, that, with that. that's that's so important nowadays, because right now we are now falling for uh, the lust of propaganda, because now we have individuals who aren't just ignorant like you or I was. And that's not an insult. Ignorance means you just don't know. It's true. Prejudice where you're prejudging. Now that's you right. have people with a vested interest in trying to divide us and destroy our entire nation, one community at a time. Uh, you know, and, and it's really uh, tragic and they're basically patterning themselves and I'm not calling them Adolf Hitler and com comparing uh, sure. them to a murderer of 10 million human beings, 6 million Jews and 4 million others. But what I am saying, they're they're using his same propaganda. And he said, he said, uh, if you want to get people to get on your side, tell a lie, <laughs> keep it simple and repeat it over and over and over again. And that was targeted for the layman. For the layman who's working hard, who doesn't have time to go to college or understand this or that, he's trying to feed his family, but he's struggling. So that was for him. Now, for the elites, you make the argument complex. Make sure you have letters behind your name when you say it, and then you put it out there and you fool them as well. But let's focus on the layman because that's 
primarily who uh, we need to unify with. So Adolf Hitler, he said that. And what was the propaganda he used against, obviously, the Jews, that the Jews were evil, all because this college professor failed him in art class, right? Jews were evil, Jews were trying to take a job, Jews had anything, were poor, were struggling. And, uh, and he basically dehumanized them. And he understood, he understood that you can bring people together faster using hate and outrage than you can using love. If you don't believe me, well, let's ask Dr. Martin Luther King. We can't. Someone shot him on the balcony in Memphis because he was trying to bring love and understanding into a, a very, very serious issue. So, uh, but he, under, he understood how that you could use hatred to bring people together. So if we could get our current detractors to stop adopting this philosophy, to uh, dehumanize cops and dehumanize anybody who isn't them, I think we can save our country. But if we don't, if we don't, I'm afraid of what this country is gonna look like in about 10 years, if we don't reverse this and get on these college campuses and, and, and really stop a lot of this, propaganda that paints everybody with such a broad and destructive brush that we end up losing sight of the individuality of individuals, you know, instead of this collectivism of negativity that we're engaged in. It's really tragic what we're seeing. Well, you know, I have to agree with you and, and echo you, you know, and I say, um, uh, God always had a bigger plan for me than I have for myself, apparently, because I've come from, you know, I was on that a group of people who were doing, I was on the far left. I was a communist leader. I was, uh, you know, looking to overthrow the U.S. government. You know, I, I had all those kind of beliefs and pushing out those kind of beliefs without, uh, and, it, and it took a while before I had a light bulb moment and then another light bulb moment. And I started to realize that 9-11 was the final one for me, where I looked at mm -hmm. all my beliefs up until that point, And I said, you were wrong about this. You were wrong about this. You were wrong about this. And I just went through all these beliefs I held that were wrong. And I kind of said I recreated myself at that moment and became a born again American. But more important than that, you know, I began to start to see people each as individuals and find a way to connect and respect people and listen and listen to their story, not come at them with any uh, preconceived ideas of who they were, or who they weren't. And that allows us to talk to each other. And you're right. I mean, it, it, it's going to get bad unless we find a way to take that message out to people, to start finding a way to, to get past the differences, to listen to each other, to find a way to say, what are the issues that we can change that people need to change? Like the homelessness, like veterans living on the street. There's so many things we can make better rather than fighting with each other on social media, which is such a waste of, of human energy and time besides everything Absolutely. else. What can Absolutely. we do to make it better? That's the bottom line. And if you ain't doing something to make it better, then start, start doing something to make it better. You know, that way and, you can be proud of yourself at the end. And while trying to make it better, make sure while making it better, you're doing it from a truth-based foundation, not an ideological one. Because Correct. where we're losing sight, where we're losing people, even with our efforts to throw billions and billions of dollars at the homeless problem, is there's no universal fix. There's no universal fix to homelessness because there are levels, there are layers, there are people struggling with mental illness, there's drug addiction, there's PTSD, there's trauma, there's dementia, there's all these things. You can't just fix it and say, okay, let's house them first, and that'll fix it. That's not true. That's not true un unless we create environments conducive to change in the lives of these people, nothing will change. No matter how many buildings you build, no matter houses you build, no matter how many billions of dollars you throw at the problem, it's going to always exist because you're not really dealing with the root cause. You're dealing with it from an ideological perspective. Uh, my college professor said this is the way or some advocate said this is the way we're supposed to do it and we're not going to deviate from it. And that's failing on all fronts. So uh, I'm hoping that 
over time our elected officials who is another part of the problem not all of them uh but they're the same ones pushing this pro propaganda and finally wake up and say okay we're doing it wrong i can't wait for the day i'm probably gonna have a heart attack when it happens when i hear a political <laughs> leader say you know what i think we better take a step back i think we screwed up here i want to hear that so bad oh i <laughs> bet you do <laughs> they're all I, too proud to admit that you know but it they is. are and i bet you do and i want to pivot now because you you just kind of opened this up and i wanted to, you to go deeper in it so i'm just going to put up a couple of two two or three pictures then i'm going to show that video of your work on youtube and then i want to come back to you speaking about from your experience those issues all of those multi-issues that there isn't a simple solution there's mental illness there's addiction there's you name it abuse uh, on and on and on and on down the road and how do you solve all those things? You don't solve them with simple solutions. And definitely politicians don't have answers to any of them. Um, no. But I want you to weigh in because you, you know, and they don't listen to the people who are on, on the front line. And that's the other problem. The people on the front line who have real experience are ignored because the people who know better than all of us put forward ideas as to what's going to work. And uh, none of them do. And they never, like you say, they never get to that point to say, to do what I did to say, Hey, I tried, I had good intentions, but I was wrong. I tried, I had good intentions. I was wrong. doesn't matter what your damn intentions are. If it doesn't work, admit it and move on and come up with a better solution. So let me just Absolutely. throw pictures up of you. And then I'm going to throw into this video. If you don't mind, we'll come back and then we'll go a little bit further. Here's, here's one, obviously, Skid Row, which is, you know, I know you said it's like the mecca for all things homeless. Um, and it's a 50 buck radius in downtown L.A. Uh, here's another one. Whoops. Um, let's see if I can get rid of that and then get this one up. And that's L.A.'s Skid Row's Dirty Little Secret. And it talks, you know, you can talk about some of what those dirty little secrets are uh, for sure. Um, then here's a picture of you basically doing your job. And now I'm going to pivot over and try and put on this video so we can, the audience can see how you work and just what's unique about what you do uh, down in Skid Row. So give me a second. Somebody would come in from Skid Row and none of them wanted a police report. They just wanted us to call an ambulance and whisk them away to safety, but they didn't want a police report because we don't want to snitch. We have to live here. That's how bad Skid Row was. When I go out in the streets, I reminded me walking the streets is keeping somebody from getting hurt. For Dion, he's very, to me, he's very, you know, spiritual. He's very, he cares about the people here in the community. He cares about people on Skid Row. When we first met Dion, he says, do you need help? We like, yes. So he took us to a store, everything, buys food, and helped, helped us find a place. We met Dion Joseph when we came to Los Angeles from Chicago about five years ago at the Union Rescue Mission. He helped us get a place and Dion got us off of Skid Row. Name Dion Joseph. I'm a senior lead officer with the Los Angeles Police Department in Skid Row. 
right before I became a police officer. That's it's something I never wanted to be. Uh, we had a family history uh, of negative encounters with the police. My dad, after growing up in the Jim Crow South, on uh, one night as a young man, he was very violent. He grabbed a brick and jumped on top of a man. And as he turned the man over, it turned out to be the town preacher. And he was like, oh, crap. The preacher said this, you got two choices. I either call the sheriff and have you locked up for the rest of your life, or you come to my church uh, every Sunday for two months. You do that, we're even. Thank God he chose the latter or I wouldn't be here, right? And he found the Lord, met my mom. Uh, he uh, decided to take his family to California. And he said he would never harm anyone to get by again. Hey, young lady. How you doing? You need some water? Yeah. What happened to your eye, baby? Uh, uh, you know, she don't like you. Who don't like you? I don't know. Same, I guess. You, you got water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Officer Joseph. How long you been down here? Um, yeah, you are kind of a new face. It's kind of hard getting houses. They, they, they reject me a lot. I got a couple of friends who might help you out, okay? Okay, Put that you. in your phone. Okay. What's your first name? Denise. All right, so I'll be waiting for you. Okay, All right. Hey, right now. See, that's, that's what Bobby wants. And I know she wants to tell me you did it, but she's scared. I have a philosophy that I've always you know, carried myself by, you know, being African-American and being indoctrinated to hate and fear the police. You know, uh, once I got out there and learned my job, you know, I was allowed to be myself. And I'm thankful to be able to work on a department that allows you to be yourself. My badge and gun, they are not my means to invoke change, you know, but it's always going to be my faith, my heart, <clears throat> and my concern for them. That will always be my unyielding dogs of war. What's up? <laughs> my definition of, of, a, of a good police officer is not just one who patrols a community, it's one who actually becomes a part of it. And I became a part of the fabric of Skid Row. Like when one of them get hurt, gets hurt or killed, it affects me. Your heart should be the catalyst for any noble thing you want to do. That's a good thing. You always have to use your hand to get it done. You always have to, because if you leave with your heart, you can make things worse or you can get it broken. And so, so yes, my heart inspires me to go out and love these people, you know, but I have to use the law, I have to use my head, and I have to use every tool in the book, my upbringing, my training, to make sure they're safe and feel loved at the same time. I've seen all my old friends there. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, and, and there's uh, that's just such a powerful video. I don't know for, for the audience, but for me, just watching it, because you touch on so many things. You touch on, obviously, you know, the, the role of your heart and, and love, but also your, your head, because you got to make decisions, you know, because if you, sometimes, as you know, if <clears throat> you leave with your heart, you do something, but it, it's not helpful. It makes it worse. So you, you got to have the intelligence to combine that with your heart and, and know how to make the right decisions and use your heart as being part of the, uh, the equation. But it's not the only way to make a decision. So there's so it's, much. It's like that. It's like that argument where they say our laws are racist. No, our laws are racist. Uh, our laws uh, are fine. It's the intent behind the enforcement of it. And if our intent is to keep people safe, no matter what community they live in, it's not racist. We cannot help 
that were in some communities more than others were not there because of their skin color. Their skin is never their sin. We're looking at the data where in one week, 30 people were victims of a, a violent assault. Uh, we're, we're in a, or in that same location, 50 people overdosed and died uh, from fentanyl in a tent or six women were raped. So disparity doesn't equal bias. It has nothing to do with the race or the socioeconomic status of the individuals we, uh, we, we police or areas we police in. But if we're not there based on the data, things get worse and we need the general public to stop listening to these stereotypes and these, these propaganda that's being pushed uh, that's making things worse. Uh, you're, you're, you're basing your policies on race, you know, when race isn't the issue, it's crime, it's crime. And if we can ever get, get back to that, and we can't help the, the, the demographic of the community. Like I, Skid Row is about 70% African-American. You think I enjoy going out there and arresting my own people? Absolutely not. That's just not my motivation. But being there for uh, over 27, being there for 27 years, I know who the wolves are because I've taken the time to get out of my patrol car, walk, talk to the community, uh, see these guys getting arrested over and over again for the same crimes, knowing their rap sheets. I know who the wolves are and I can't help the racial demographic of them. But if I don't. Whoops. I think I just lost you. Your your uh, volume went off, Dion. Are you there? Uh, yeah, I lost I lo you. You muted. Um. Well, I'm just going to talk for a second while you try and get your volume back on. Uh, yeah, you just went mute on me. Anyway, what, what you were saying exactly? To, Can you hear me? Up. Oh, you you almost came back. Um, you know, in, in that situation, it isn't the demographics, like you said, and I'm going to just keep going until you come back on, but it isn't the demographics. It's the reality that you're there to protect the vulnerable, to protect people like that woman you spoke with in the car who got beat up, being there to protect her and, and protect the old people and the people who are most vulnerable in those neighborhoods, no matter what those neighborhoods are. That's what job you're doing. And that's who you're um, involving yourself with, um, having some- Can you hear me? You, yeah, now I can hear you, thank you. I, I, just, right. I, just, I just rambled a little, uh, echoing what you had said about the demographic, <laughs> how you were trying to get back on uh, audio, but I just, I just echoed it and said, yeah, so true, because you're there protecting the vulnerable, whether they're that woman that you talked to in the car who got beat up, uh, or it's the old people, or it's the people who are the, the, the weak in the society and, and in those neighborhoods are the victims, not the predators. And that's why you're there. You're there to protect those people and not, um, and the predators are the predators. And your, your job is to protect against the predators. So I wish right. people would you. I wish people I, would understand that because what now, right now what people want police officers to do is fight crime from historical context because America has a racist history which it does, which every country has a racist history. Everybody, every country has been. They want us to police from that perspective and you're not gonna get the job done. I cannot stop a rape in historical context. I, uh, that woman getting raped in a tent, that black woman getting raped in a tent, doesn't care about whether you think law enforcement officers and slave catchers are the same thing. All she wants is for some officer to come in there and intervene and save her life. 
Okay, right. a, a, a gang member who just had his life threatened, and 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 just because they're gang members doesn't mean they shouldn't be safe. And he's scared, but he's too afraid to come to the police. I don't think he cares about historical context. We have to figure out as right. police how to save lives right now, not based on people's perceptions or ideologies about racism. And uh, and that's the dangerous part of where we are now. We're basing literally policy, and we're weakening laws that once kept communities safe, where there was a 13-year run of crime reduction. And now, because we've weakened laws under the, the assumption that they're based on racism, uh, and you've bought into that, okay, you have what you wanted, okay? Arrest her down, cops are leaving the department, uh, you know, uh, people aren't doing jail time like they should, especially the most serious offenders, and guess what you got? A crime wave. And so that proves right there, in my opinion, emphatically, that racism was not driving us, data was driving us to do our job. And we have to get back to that, no matter how many feelings get hurt. Feelings can get hurt, but hey, at least you're gonna have those hurt feelings and be alive. You can stand in front of your front porch and not get shot by somebody, you know? And that's what we gotta get back to, we have to. And you know, I I, I agree with you. And you said, you know, one time I saw you say something and I think it's just, if, if you can just weigh in on this too. And once again, good intentions, uh, you know, throughout my lifetime, I realized that good intentions have, most of the time have turned out to be bad policy. Bad has affected the people it's supposed to help in the opposite way and has not been helpful. So the people who said, well, yeah, we were trying to help them. Yeah, I, all right, I agree. But that's not the answer. The answer is, what are you, what is your results? Always judge it on the results you're getting. And like one of the things you were just mentioning, uh, when they allow tents to come into the whole environment of the homeless world, whether it's downtown or in other cities, was that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it was done out of good intentions, right? Somebody thought this would help the homeless because they have their own tent. And so that was the intention. What was the outcome? And from you on the ground, what did you see and what? how did it lead to uh, negative consequences because of that? The outcome of that was more human trafficking. Uh, gangsters were able to hide uh, the trafficking of women and others. Men get trafficked there too, and even children in the tents. Uh, the tents being utilized to store cocaine, methamphetamine, and fentanyl, things that are killing people every day right now. Uh, marijuana, I know people, oh, marijuana is a big deal, but they're lacing fentanyl with everything. So now, yes, marijuana can be included in that conversation. Uh, storing weapons. Now, here's the, the thing a lot of people don't know. Places like Skid Row that are crime-ridden, allowing them to be encampment zones are dangerous. And listen, any city who is thinking about falling for this narrative that this is okay, please listen to me. We're watching Austin, Texas fall right now because they wouldn't listen to me, okay? <laughs> Thank Very you. True. I, somebody, thankfully, uh, another city reached out to me recently, says, hey, we're worried, we're about to go the same way. I'm coming, okay? <laughs> I wanna <laughs> come and share. But, but don't fall for this narrative because here, places like Skid Row that are crime-ridden, when a homeless person comes down to Skid Row, or places like it to set up a tent, uh, what's gonna happen is the gangsters already have control of those blocks. So in Skid Row, there's a crime syndicate called the Downtown Gangsters, AKA the DTGs. And they're a mixture of bloods and crips who work together in harmony uh, to sell drugs. They have a gentleman's agreement to, hey, there's enough customers here. You take these hotels over here, we'll take the street over here and let's just get along and we'll all convene at the park and collect our money off the backs of the homeless, right? So what happens is when you come and set up a tent in Skid Row and you're from out of town, like we're getting a lot of out of towners coming in, you think because our governor said, hey, come on down, we're gonna help all the homeless. And you come on down from sunny Florida or Colorado and you pitch a tent in Skid Row, here's what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna have a gangster come up to you and say, who are you? What the hell are you doing here? 
and you're going to say, hey, I'm just homeless, uh, just trying to pitch a tent and try to get some services. Well, the gangster's going to say, okay, uh, well, you don't belong here. If you want to stay here, here's what you have to do. You either have to pay us to live on the sidewalk. I know couples, uh, elderly couples who had to pay their entire social security check to the downtown mm -hmm. gangsters every month just to stay in a tent. Or you have to agree to let my women, our women use their tent uh, for sex trafficking or hold my drugs. And uh, if that person is already a drug addict, he says, hey, you're a drug addict, right? Guess what? I'm a drug dealer. I tell you what, you sell this for me. I'll give you a little chip, you know, but just make sure my money's right at the end of the day. So, uh, and if you don't agree to that, you get brutally assaulted. And that's why you're seeing, uh, and this is a lot of people don't talk about, why are we seeing more people, homeless people leaving Skid Row and going to other places? And the reason why is because Skid Row, thanks to horrible policy, litigation, injunctions, and you name it, bad, horrible laws, uh, Skid Row has become too dangerous to be homeless. And that's why you're seeing homeless encampments popping up all over the county, all over the state. And uh, with everywhere you go, you're going to see two things. You're going to see gangsters follow them because they know many people, two thirds of individuals who are choosing to live on the street, you know, uh, when they have other options, uh, they struggle with mental illness and addiction. And drug dealers know that they're not stupid. So they're going to find them and they're going to continue the same pattern until that encampment gets too dangerous and then it spreads and spreads and spreads while our leaders are saying, oh, it's not about drugs, it's about housing. That's not true. I have held house about 150 people in Skid Row uh, over time, over 10 years. And uh, on average, there's about 22,000 to 2,500 people living on the streets. How come in 10 years, only 150 came to me? Because that was the 150 that were ready when we were able to create an environment where they were, it was conducive to change, but they were finally ready. The other 2000 knew, hey, you can go to Joseph and get a leg up on housing or a shelter, but they refused to go because there is addiction that keeps them, whether it's alcohol or drug, keeps them anchored to the sidewalk. And without a push, a push, uh, whether you use law enforcement or whatever, a push to get these people to services, many of them aren't even going to choose housing. And I'll prove, th I'll prove that. Out of the 150 people that I housed, about half of them left the housing within a week. And wow. the reason why they left the housing was because they were addicted to drugs. Exactly. And of course, in the housing programs, they have case managers and they have rules where you can't do X, Y, Z. Now, some of them believe in harm reduction where they say, okay, you can uh, you can have your crack pipe in your room, but we have caseworkers. Okay, I think that's a failed philosophy, but that, but that was their deal. The problem was a lot of these individuals who got housed still owed drug debts to drug dealers on the streets and the drug dealers knew where they were. So all the drug dealers do is send their people in there and knock on the door and say, hey, I heard you got housing, congratulations. And guess what? You still owe me $500, $600. So this is what you have to do. Get out of your room for 12 hours so I can sell my dope here. Or you stay in here and make sure you sell our dope. And that's why a lot of these hotels, low-income supportive hotels, not all of them, but many of them have become complete total drug dens where the people that live there are saying it's worse inside the hotels than it is in the darn street. So you have some of those people just leaving, A, because of rules, or leaving because they got kicked out by the criminal element, or leaving because inside the hotel is just as bad as it was in the street. So I'd rather take my chances in the street. And these are the things that they're not talking about across the nation because we're having our politicians, and I'm not knocking all politicians. I don't want to come off as a jerk politician. There are many great politicians out there, but too many of them are silent on this issue. Uh, they need to start speaking up. Uh, have bought into the homeless industrial complex. And what that is is a group of elites who come in and say, we know the answer to solving homelessness. It's not enforcement it's not any of this it's housing first and that's going to solve it they don't know what they're talking about 
They have no idea. They studied a book. They saw it from a 30,000 view. Their college professor, some college professor with a PhD says, this is how it should be done. And our leaders have this mindset. Those are the experts. Right. They don't talk to people like me. They don't talk to the mental health counselors who are walking the street every day. They don't talk to the fire department who sees people in agitated states of delirium, you know, and respond to these calls all the time. They're not talking to the boots on the ground and they don't have to talk to me. I don't need them to talk to me. I'd like for them to, because I have a lot of experience, but there are plenty of other people to talk to if they don't want to talk to me about the reality of what's happening on the ground. If you don't do that, you will never truly, truly know what's really happening and how to help people, once again, from a truth-based foundation, not an ideological one. I mean, I, I can only say 100% agree with you on all of that because, you know, in my experience, when I was a counselor with runaway kids in Hollywood, you know, uh, we looked at it, some of us, not all of us, but some of it looked at it from the point of view of there's two ways you can deal with homelessness or especially young people, which is a little different problem than the Skid Row problem because they're younger and they haven't had years of, of addiction and mental illness. But similar. And the bottom line of it was either you empower them to change or you entitle them to continue to behavior. And so much of the programs that exist out there are entitlements. They're programs that keep them in the same place. And, and I, you know, like you won't knock all politicians. I understand that and agree. Um, and it, with the homeless um, programs as well, at the end of the day, I won't knock all of them because there's some good ones and some good people. But People profit. If you're making a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars a year running a homeless program, if homelessness never goes away, you, you're good. You got it all right. Yep. You know, you're making a nice yep. salary helping the homeless, but you ain't getting them off the streets. You're just making a living, repeating the same thing over and over and over again, and, and getting the same results, which is the wrong results. So. That's the thing, you know, there's too much of that. And yes, they need to listen to you and the policy should come from the people who have the real experience, not from the people on the top. Um, but right, you because know, we know, we know what's working. all gonna be shocked if that day happens, you know? We know what works, I know, I know what works, I know what failed. And what worked was from 2005 to 2010, uh, 11, I'm sorry, 2011, we were engaged in an effort uh, that was a three-pronged approach to uh, uh, homelessness, and that was enforcement, enhancement, and outreach. So let me explain enforcement. Enforcement had to happen because too many people were dying in Skid Row. 93 people died from non-homicidal deaths. Uh, 35 people were killed from homicide in one year. I remember there was one year where there was a homic uh, 35 homicides in a 50-block radius. That's insane. Uh, so, so enforcement had to happen because there was a air in skid row that skid row was the wild wild west anything goes and it wasn't that the cops were fat and lazy and didn't care and were sitting around eating donuts they weren't supported by the very system that told them to go out there and deal with this it was kind of like this the area's dirty little secret that this is the armpit of the city and we want to keep it that way let's keep them in there boxed up contained and we don't have to, the rest of the world doesn't have to worry about it uh, but that was a form of injustice to me uh, so that mindset changed and we went in there and we took a zero tolerance uh, stance on crime and it worked. That alone would not have sustained itself. And I'm explaining why. In 1978, uh, a former chief, a police chief uh, at the same agency tried the same thing, but he was missing two things, enhancement and outreach. So he tried to bring the hammer, but the hammer didn't last long. It couldn't sustain itself. Hmm. Okay. We weren't trying to bring the hammer. So we coupled with enforcement, we brought enhancement and talking to the community, working with the community, bringing them to the table. Trees were trimmed, slats were put in the sidewalk for the handicapped to use. The tents were down from uh, 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. 
Uh, and after 9 p.m., if you're really homeless and you need a place to sleep on the sidewalk, hey, there's not enough shelter. We get it. Pitch your tent. 6 a.m., you got to pack your stuff up, clear it off the sidewalk. And they actually did it. And wow. what uh, streetlights, putting up streetlights, why did streetlights important? Because of all the rapes that were happening at night. Uh, you know, women make up uh, 40% of the Skid Row population, but out of that 40%, two thirds of them have been victims of sexual assault. Uh, so if you don't tell me you care about the safety of women, but you're okay with the ideology that puts them in constant danger, you know? Wow. So we did. So what we did was we changed the environment. That, that was number two, but that alone, those two things would not have uh, sustained itself. What helped sustain it was the outreach that was working synergetically with the enforcement and the enhancement. So let me explain. It wasn't about harassing homeless and just putting them in jail because that wouldn't have solved the problem. You can't arrest your way out of homelessness. We all know that. But what we did do was we had a program called SOS, Streets of Services, where we, if we arrested you for a crime and we knew that mental health, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, or, or, or chronic homelessness or whatever drove you to commit these uh, minor crimes, you didn't kill anybody. We have you sign up for a program at your choice called SOS. That means you either go to services for 21 days or we file the charges. And of course, one year, I think 2,225 individuals signed up for the program, which is fantastic. Now, not all of them completed the program. The vast majority of them signed it so they can get back out there and use a tree. But in my estimation, about 30% of them actually did sign up and wow. did go to drug programs and did go to mental health programs and did end up going back home to their loved ones because I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. I'd say about 35% of the people you see in Skid Row aren't actually homeless. They're down there because they burn their bridges out with their wives or their families and until they get cleaned up, they can't come home. You know, but all they have to do, and some of them can go home, they just won't. They just have become used to, the human being can get uh, become adapt to anything. And they got used to that street life and that easy access. So. We found that program was starting to have impact, and we noticed that from enforcement, enhancement, and outreach, not just enforcement, because that's the word everybody wants to key in on and, and just sure. have a hissy fit over, but the enforcement <laughs> was used to finally get individuals who never would have sought services on their own to services, and it actually worked. The drug programs got better. The shelters saw less guns and drugs coming into their facilities. Drug program graduations, more people were graduating from drug programs. Why? Because the environment. The environment was better. And that's one of the key tenements of uh, people in uh, NA and AA, the environment. The environment is everything. You don't right. want, If you're trying to get off drugs, why are you going to go to uh, 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 Club 54, you know, where there's drugs being passed out left and right? You're going to fall off the wagon, you know? That's right. And Skid Row, Skid Row is what that is. So we were able to clean that up and it worked. What people don't know and don't remember is it actually had an impact. So let's go with data because some people, oh, give me the stats. You can give me anecdotal stories all day long. Okay, here's the data. All crime in Skid Row was down 40%. That means Skid Row was a relatively safe place to live and work and recovery. It was an actual recovery zone. Wow. Uh, death was down 30, 32%. Uh, so let me give you an example of that. In 2005, 93 human beings died from non-homicidal deaths. 18 were found dead in the streets like stray animals, beautiful human beings like stray animals in tents and in garbage. Uh, in 2009, 63 people died in Skid Row still from non-homicidal death. But guess how many we found in the street? Five. You know why? Because if we're able to see them, we're able to save them. If the fire department's able to see them, they can, if the mental health workers are able to see them, we can save them. And it actually had an impact on death. Let's just talk about homicide. In 2002, I told you, 35 people were murdered in Skid Row. Guess how many were murdered in 2007? Two years into our program. Wow. So 
So I always tell people, look, I know policing isn't sexy. You want sexy, call the fire department. They're handsome guys. They rescue kids from trees. Now I'm just playing. I love the fire department. <laughs> <laughs> they're great. They're great guys. Fire Station Nine, some of the greatest uh, <laughs> firefighters you'll ever meet. I always like to tease them with that. But no, so it's really, a you want watching between fire and police, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but the reality is, not paid to respond to nice things. I'm paid to respond to the systemic failures of all factors of American society. And it's not gonna be pretty when I do it. It's not gonna look pretty. But if you let me do my job and stop politicizing it, you will see change in your community. You will see change, positive change, not just for people outside of homeless communities, but you'll even see positive changes out inside the homeless encampments as well. Working with the police. Uh, now there's this whole thing of, oh, oh uh, social workers can't work with police. That's insane. Why wouldn't you work with me when I can tell you where the most vulnerable people are? I'm the one arresting them every other day, you know? So, and I proved, I can prove that theory here. There was a program called Operation Healthy Streets that, that uh, it was inspired by me uh, because I wrote an article titled um, Skid Row, a Mental Health Emergency, uh, State of Emergency. And I guess someone saw, saw it and it caught fire. And I remember it pissed off a lot of uh, mental health workers. Oh, what is this officer saying? But he's lying. But what I love was a couple of them says, no, he's telling the truth. Hmm. So from that, uh, the then city council person during that time it was around 2014. He said, OK, let's put together a task force to get our mental health clinicians, our Department of Children Services, DPS, all adult services and all these services to get out and walk the beat. The first two days they tried to do it when they launched it, uh, they only got two people off the street. So when we heard that. You know, I'm thinking, well, hell, I'm the one who wrote the article. <laughs> so I got two my, two other officers who care just as much as I did. And there are many who do. But these are two that were well known, just like I'm not the only one. And we joined them. We just kicked down the door, said, we're walking with you no matter what you say. And we got 17 people off the street in one day wow. because we knew where the people were. So we have to stop this wall that people are putting up based on college professors saying, oh, police shouldn't. That's not true. There are well-known police officers out there who have the pulse of what's going on in the community. You need to work with them, not uh, marginalize them from the process. Well, it, it's an hour. I don't know if you if you got another 15 minutes. I could go for hours with you because, uh, I mean, you, you're just laying down so much wisdom, um, Joseph, that I, I just think people need to really hear. Do you have another 15 minutes? We can go a little bit further. It's also want to pivot in, or give me 10 or whatever. I just want to pivot into some of the other things that you do and just kind of give them a a range of, of who you are as a human being, throw up some pictures and, and yeah, show yeah. some other stuff of you. But uh, let me know. Yeah, let's, you let's, 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 let's give it about 10 because I got to go with my wife. Uh, but let's give it about 10 minutes. Yeah. Got it. All right. Well, I'm, I'm just going to throw up some pictures and talk about you a little bit, if you don't mind. I mean, the first one is your, your book, which is right here, Stepping Across the Line, A Skid Row Cop Story. And I would just recommend that to anybody watching that you go on Amazon, you buy this book, you get a chance to, you know, listen to the story that um, Dion's laid down and you get a, a feel for it. I'm just going to throw up other pictures. Besides all the policing you do, you do so much things that are just like working with emissions uh, down there, like the, you know, for Christmas, you know, here's just a picture of you with a Christmas hat on do, doing stuff, uh, you know, with the uh, different uh community organizations. You're a speaker. You're a motivational speaker. Here's just a, a picture of you speaking. You speak at a, a lot of different organizations on different issues. So all around, you know, volunteering at the Union Mission with uh, uh, here. Uh, that's a, a picture of you up there. And 
So all that stuff, you know, you're just well-rounded besides being a police. But one of the things you said, and I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'm just going to promote one other thing for you that you're also involved in that your wife, I think, will be happy if I promote it, um, is, uh, <laughs> you know, the, that, you know, one thing you say is that first you're a human and then you're a police officer. And I, I just think that's such a powerful statement. And I just think people have to realize that all the police officers or anybody, whatever your professional, your thing is, first, you're a human. And if you mm -hmm. if you treat each other as human to human, you're going to get a lot further in life than if you treat each other with this title or this job thing that you're part of at that moment in your life. That's just one part of your identity. Your biggest identity is that you're a human and the other yep. person is a human. And then you go human to human. So that's my first just want to have you speak on that. And then the second thing, I know this isn't something you probably want to do, but if, if it ever was something, you know, I would say if you were to be the mayor of, uh, of this city, uh, which would be a, a, a pretty great improvement in my opinion, um, <laughs> <laughs> would be, uh, you know, what kind of things for the homeless? Cause you know, your range of knowledge of this problem is so deep and so individual because you've dealt with hundreds of people. You've seen your friends, in Skid Row on the streets die. You've been there when they died. You, you've, you, you have that human connection to, to humans who are going through the worst times of their life and the worst situations in their life and you treat them as humans with love and compassion. So that's a unique thing. I wish politicians could ever have that experience um, or we'd have politicians who were like that. It would make for a better world, I would think. But those two things, just oh, yeah. that, the human thing and then the, you know, if you were the mayor, just some of the things to solve this problem. And then I'll do one promotion of your wife's thing and I'll let you go. Well, uh, one of the things I learned from my parents is uh, uh, everything you do, uh, you got to show people who you are. I'll never forget my mom said this to me one day. She says, Dion, uh, it's hard to save souls where you when you forget what God brought you from. And that stuck with me. So what that inspired me to do was flip that uh, as it relates to police work and say, I need to show these people who I am, not just what I do. And uh, while for years I was told by my training officers, don't ever do that, you know, go numb, just do your job 12 hours, go home, right? Uh, but I couldn't do that. That's, that kind of went against what my mom was saying. And also I realized that I couldn't really relate to the people of Skid Row because I didn't recognize that what they were going, a lot of them were experiencing on a consistent basis was trauma that they experienced from their entire life. Now, I my life has never been like the people of Skid Row. But one day I had to think about why it is these people didn't trust me at first. I'm here to help you with a rape, but you're telling me to go pound sand. I'm here to, you know, help you with you just got shot, brother, and you don't want me to help you, you know, and I didn't understand that at first. But then I had to look at my own life. And I remember as a young man, uh, I was uh, uh, physically abused by, I'll call them loved ones. And I call them loved ones because I still love them to this day. But they always say, forgiveness is for you, not for them. And I had to learn to forgive. And, and, and so I could move on with my life. But I was physically abused in some really, really horrible ways by uh, two loved ones, very close loved ones. And, uh, and I remember when they abused me, they would always say, uh, uh, don't tell your parents. Don't tell your parents, uh, here's some bubble gum. I love you, I love you. And all I heard was, I love you. And I got some bubblelicious, right? <laughs> you know, so I'm a kid. I'm just a small kid. And I never told my parents. So it wasn't my parents. I had the two greatest parents in the world. But they had to go to work and grind to try to create a legacy for a family. So anyway, uh, you know, so over the years, these individuals really let me down. And then I went to school. Uh, I went to a, a Lutheran school. I'm not saying Lutheran schools are bad. There's some great 
Christian schools out there. My sons went to one. But uh, at that school, they believed in corporal punishment and they abused the crap out of me, my brothers, and a lot of the kids in the class. And some horrible things happened there. So uh, I'll never forget one day my dad uh, comes to pick me up from school because one of the teachers faked a phone call to my parents and said, uh, can we, uh, do we have permission to uh, whip your son? And they hung up the phone and they proceeded to beat me. So after this went on for about six months and then the other trauma dealing with family members, uh, my dad picks me up from school. And he, I'm real quiet. My dad said, how was your day, son? How's my boy? And I wouldn't say anything. And he said, you hear me talking to you, son? And I said, dad, why did you let those people beat me? And he was like, what? He turned that car around, wow. went back to the school. And I don't know what he did in that office. I know we had free tuition for the year and not another kid got touched. <laughs> but for the first time in my life, I had someone step in for me and stand tall for me because wow. I said something. Now, all the other times I didn't say anything. Right. Uh, and what I believe in my heart is that the people in Skid Row, they've had their whole lives, 20, 30 years, without someone to step up and stand up for them. And, uh, and that was going to be me. And the primary reason why is, you know, uh, you know, I, I look at their situation and I remember like the trauma that I experienced as a child still impacts me to this day. You know, uh, I know where, as a police officer, I have a lot of cops who I worked with who always thought I was a jerk because I was very aloof. I was kind of like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar where people thought he was a jerk because he was very silent, very quiet, very standoffish. And it wasn't because I hated him. I loved him with, a, with all my heart. But based on my own physical traumas, you know, I was I always had this fear that if I end up getting close to you at some point, you're going to disappoint me. You're going to hurt me. So I always even kept cops. I only have two friends on, the, on my agency. I always wow. kept cops at bay. And a lot of people don't know this. So if that happened to me, imagine what's going on with the people at Skid Row. So what I did was I, wow. I, I humanized them. I humanized myself. And I was able, and what that gave me was this patience. Instead of reacting or losing my patience and say, hey, come on, I got another call to go to. I really took my time to really find out who the people were and they appreciated me for it. So that, that's, that's the thing about me opening up and, uh, and trying to be human and show people who I am, uh, not just what I do. And uh, what was the second part to your question? Well, I don't think you have time to get into this. It's a deeper one about if you were a mayor, how you would change. Because I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. Okay, go go ahead, and then I want to throw up pictures about your what your wife's doing that you're supporting her on. I want to do that before we finish; otherwise, I'll feel like I failed. But um, yeah. people always ask what I would do if I was in a position of power. Now, a lot of people, whether you're a mayor, city council, you don't really have a lot of power. But what you have is the bully pulpit. Right. You have a pulpit to tell, be honest with people, and share your the truth uh, based experiences to guide the public to the, to, to the thought so we can all come up with uh, real solutions to help people. But if I was the governor of California, per se, whatever, what would I do? Uh, several things. The first is I would change, completely overhaul the mental health system. And I know I'm probably going to piss off a lot of people from civil right groups, but, but right I would on. want them in, at the table. So here's what I would do. It would no longer be a 72-hour hold because it's not even 72 hours over uh, anymore. The hospitals are overrun, they're full. So what it is, is we bring somebody to the hospital who's in crisis, who's on drugs uh, and mentally ill, what we call dual diagnosis. And they sprinkle pills on them in the name of civil liberties. The person, uh, uh, what they call is they clean up and say, oh yeah, I feel good. Why? Because they want to get back and use drugs. They get right. released and next thing you know, they run into us again and the cycle continues. And now it's getting worse as more people are experiencing mental illness. Thanks to the pandemic, it's getting far, far worse. So what I would do is I would change that to six weeks, especially in cases of individuals 
with dual diagnosis, and here's why. For the average person, whether you're dual diagnosed or not, it takes six to eight weeks for your prescribed medication to take effect, for you to even benefit from the therapeutic attributes of your medication. You wouldn't let a heart patient off the operating table three days later, would you? Heck no, you wouldn't do that. But you're going to let somebody who's struggling with mental illness before their medication could actually stabilize them? So at least six weeks, just six weeks. And in that six weeks, you have to detox them first. That's the most important thing. Because I don't care how much prescribed medication you get them. If they still got the chemical itch, they're still going to fall off the wagon. So detox them. Clean them up first. And when you clean them up, guess what? They can hear you. And because Mm -hmm. you have the the expertise and the rapport, uh, the ability to build rapport with these individuals, talk to them, find out who their loved ones are, contact them, and see if we can streamline the process of conservatorships so their loved ones can actually connect with them and help them throughout their life instead of just releasing them back in the street. And then there's this needle in a haystack trying to find them all over again, okay? Trust me, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing when families come to look for their loved ones and they get there to the hospital too late and now they got to start the process all over again of trying to find a loved one. So that's one. Uh, and then uh, also after the six weeks, of course, we don't want to violate people's civil rights. We don't want to bring back institutions and, and, and lobotomies and stuff like that. After six weeks, if they haven't connected to the family, you got to let them go. But I guarantee you one thing, they will have been used to taking their medication and they'll survive the streaks longer than just releasing them in six hours, okay? Because they'll have a routine of taking their medication again. And if they fall off the wagon, okay, then so be it. We'll be there to deal with it. Okay, so that's one. The Step two. Step two would be let the police do their job. Stop politicizing police work, okay? Laws are made for a reason. Laws are not designed to hurt people's civil liberties. They're designed to enhance them and have them enjoy those civil liberties in a safe manner. That's what laws are about. Because when we, when, we, when we enforce laws, guess what? Things are better, right? You right. can still walk down the street. When we don't, now you can't walk down the street because there's a big tent and a drug dealer offering you fentanyl. <laughs> you know, now you have to walk in the streets while they're choosing the rights of a homeless individual over you. And look, no one can be above the law, whether it's a rich person or the homeless person. Any two groups that are above the law, it ends up in disaster. So we just need to stop politicizing the law and police work and let officers do their job, separate the wolves from the sheep and get these bad guys off the street. And the last thing, if I had my white, is the decentralized services. Uh, by that, I'm not saying- do what? Decentralized? Uh, decentralized services to the homeless. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not saying we should shut down all 108 programs in Skid Row or other places like it. I'm not saying that at all. We need them. I don't want to see one closed. I just don't want to see another one open. When in L.A. County, you have 88 cities and only three cities have stepped up to try to help the homeless. That's insane. You know, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people have their preconceived notions of homelessness. I'm not saying take some guy with a needle in his arm fresh and put him in your community. I, I, I wouldn't want that. What I am saying is there are groups in Skid Row and places, excuse me, places like it, like the elderly, okay? They can't hurt anybody. How's them first? Drug drug addicts who've been clean and sober at the mission, they're benefiting from the programs and they're trying to do right. They've been clean and sober for six or seven months. How's them first? Or the handicapped, how's them first? How about that? Or families, the Union Rescue Mission, a wonderful organization. They have families of mothers, fathers, women, and children who need housing. How's them first? They're not going to burn down your city. You know, they, they need your help. So so we need to decentralize services. Other cities need to step up and put up services like that to take some of the burden off of places like Skid Row, where the people who live in Skid Row can benefit from the programs and have a better environment. And also the people who leave will have a better environment. 
And uh, these are some of the things if I wave my magic wand, I would completely do like on day one. And I reversed uh, these irresponsible laws like Prop 47, 57, AB 109 that completely took the teeth out of law enforcement. And we got to put those teeth back in and get bad guys out the street and try to keep them off for as long as the law says. Yeah, that, but that's what I would do. Well, I mean, that's very thorough, practical, um, experience-based ideas as to how to change things. And I think you've, you had enough experience to speak from, from that reality, not from book knowledge or colleges, or, but from being out on the street. But not only just being out on the street, you know, make, wanting to make a difference for everybody, including the people who are going through the worst and having that compassion and that heart. You combine it all in a package, man. So just really appreciate you, appreciate what you do and continue, have done all your life and what you continue to do. Truly appreciate it. Appreciate you coming on the show and sharing it with the audience. And just, you know, I hope more and more people will speak up, listen to you, uh, get involved in trying to make a difference so that we things don't get worse in this society, but they get better. And it, it's an uphill battle. But I think, you know, it takes people like yourself and others who get inspired to uh, do whatever they can to be part of the solution and mm -hmm. not be part of the problem and not be ideological. So you lay it out, man, so powerful. Um, once again, I thank you so much. I just want to put up two pictures because, you know, besides what you do, you also, like you said, you're a human. And one of the things you do is you support your wife who started an amazing thing, which one, I want to meet you in person. I want to meet her and I'm putting up the picture of her uh, Comfort Wings truck. Um, and I love the saying, with God, all things are possible. Um, you know, it, it, this, uh, and I'm going to put a picture of you up there just winging it. Uh, <laughs> pretty cool stuff, man, because here you are doing something as an entrepreneur. Your wife is an entrepreneur, taking out this comfort wings, taking it out there and sharing that, but also sharing a message, sharing a message of, a message of love and hope. Um, and the two of you, I, I just wish you the best, um, you know, blessed. And I look forward to the day I'm going to come down, try her wings. I love the wings and get a chance to mm -hmm. meet both, both of you in person. Um, but, you know, I'll put up after this your contact information and also the contact information for Comfort Wings so people can uh, get a chance to, to um, contact you um, and also for speaking or for any other events and also contact her and follow her online so she could, they can get out there and try those wings like I'm looking forward to. Brother, anything else you would like to add as, as I wrap it up and then I'll put your contact information and you can head out and uh, go support her. Um, anything yeah. you would like to add. And once again, thank yeah. you so much for your, for your time. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, just thank you so for having me on. Thank you for giving uh, not just me, but law enforcement a voice. There are so many other officers uh, who are doing incredible work besides me. I don't want to give the impression that I'm the only one. No, I know officers I work with at my station who are just as passionate, just as courageous, and across this country. So just thank you for giving uh, law enforcement a voice. Uh, that's something a lot of people aren't doing. So I appreciate you for that. God bless you. And uh, hey, you look me up on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I have Officer Joseph fan page on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, it's OFCR Dion Joseph. Uh, if you want to follow me there, uh, and if you want to follow my wife at Comfort Wings, it's Comfort Wings with a Z. Comfort Wings with a Z at Instagram or Facebook. And uh, I know if you don't live in the country, just uh, give her a like anyway to just support her because we plan on taking her nationwide one of these old days. But I'm so proud of her. But thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. Hey, God bless you as well, brother. Thank you so much, and, and best to both of you. And I, like I said, I look forward to meeting both of you in person. Ha have a blessed day. Take care of yourself. God bless you. Take care. God bless you. All right. Well, that was a uh, 
a rather a uh, little bit longer than my usual hour. And um, what a show, what an individual, what a, a um, amazing role model for leadership, for love, for compassion, for representing the police department and just somebody who wants to make a difference. So thank you so much for being part of the show. And I look forward to, uh, I'm gonna be jumping on another show in a, a little while at 2 p.m., a second one today. Uh, but once again, I can't say I'm um, honored and thankful to have uh, Officer Joseph uh, speak and share his experience, his knowledge, his wisdom, because I think that, uh, I just hope that more people, it will resonate and the message will uh, go further. So. Once again, thank you, everybody. Um, may you make your life a masterpiece and God bless.